Well, the word for today can be found in page 835. Your pew Bible will be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Before we read the word, I want to note that we have some special guests with us today that our global outreach partner Steve and Heather Leston are here with us today. I don't know where you are, though. Can you raise your hand? There they are, right here. Um, They are up here with us from Texas uh, with some difficult family circumstances, but all the same, we are so happy to have you guys here with us. And um, it's a little nerve-wracking for me, to be honest, um, because part of the reason we're preaching on missions is because I went down to Texas and heard Steve teach us about missions, and I used so much of what he taught us down there in these sermons. In fact, I came across, Steve, I came across a paper. I think I must have just come across it in Ray's files, like you just left me these electronic files, by you on the biblical philosophy of missions. And I've used that paper so much, and I haven't cited him once. <laughs> <laughs> and the using of that paper was, was like a really helpful paper in developing these, these sermon series. So um, it's like the student gets to teach in front of the master here. So uh, we are happy to have you with us, and you can, you know, correct whatever I say wrong afterwards, all right? Well, we'll be reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, if you've been with us these past three weeks, you know that we've been in a three-part sermon series titled Answering the Call to Missions. Answering the Call to Missions. It's a series that we wanted to do after studying the book of Acts, which we've been doing for the past year. Um, and it's one that has been on our radar screen on, as elders, as pastors, um, something that we would like to see our church grow in and developing a heart for outreach um, as however the Lord would want to do that in us and accomplish that in us. Um, and so we've been praying towards that end, working towards that end. And this series is an opportunity for us to preach towards that end. So you know that in the first sermon, we talked about who is called to answer the call to missions, and we answered that, that all who are Christ followers are called to answer that call to missions. We said in the second sermon, um, where should we go? And we talked about how we have the scope of going everywhere, beginning in Jerusalem, Jesus said, and going to the nations. Um, And then we talked about some specific ways that we can do that as we think about what it would have been like for the disciples to go to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, as Jesus told them to do in Acts. So having covered Jesus's commission in the books of John and Luke and Acts, um, we're skipping Mark. And the reason is because I couldn't get any snakes And if you know what Mark's uh, commissioning text is in chapter 16, it involves snakes, and we didn't have any snakes, so we're going to skip Mark and go straight to Matthew's. Some of you will know that that's supposed to be a joke, but we'll just keep moving on. So as we jump into the third message, our question before us is, what is our goal as we answer the call to missions? What's the goal? So as we all are called to go, and as we are called to go out to the ends of the earth, what is it that we are trying to accomplish? What's the goal that Christ, to be more like Jesus, that is one of the goals for sure, and it's going to help us to accomplish the goal today. So the goal, what is the goal? 
Well, this past week, an article was written by a missionary who had worked alongside her husband at a school for children of other missionaries. They worked as missionaries at a school school for children of missionaries, for missionary kids for a period of time. Before transitioning their work to become teachers, or the husband became a professor at a seminary uh, for East African pastors. And in her article, the author laments that while working for the school as a missionary, she and her husband reached out to 200 different uh, churches from their home state asking for support. And out of the 200 churches they reached out to for financial support, only two responded. But then she said, once we moved to church strengthening and church planting missions where we were working in a seminary raising up pastors, well, churches were knocking down our door to support us. The point of the article was to call out local American churches for their role in creating what she considered to be a class system among missionaries, a system where missionaries who focus on planting churches and strengthening churches are prioritized over missionaries who don't, who focus their energy elsewhere, like medical missions, or teaching English as a second language missions, or working in missionary support roles, like teaching in a school for missionary kids. The author went on to explain that in the mind of sending churches, missionaries who focus their work only on the building of the church and church planters and church strengtheners had created a A list of missionaries, whereas everybody else was to be relegated to the B or C list of missionaries. Now, articles like these can be hard to read because you feel the obvious hurt behind it, right? You feel the pain behind the author's experience. The article itself And the way that it's written is an article that's crying out for compassion. It's saying, take compassion, take pity on this situation. And its aim is to make the reader say, no missionary who has left their home and family and country to move overseas and serve Christ on foreign soil should ever have to face this trial. It's getting us to try to, trying to get us to say churches should be willing to support all types of missionaries, no matter what they do, with equal amounts of enthusiasm. But what if we flip the scenario around? And rather than looking at the scenario from the perspective of the missionary, we look at it from the perspective of the sending church. So we have a sending church, a local faithful church that, that wants to be faithful to the Great Commission and support the work of global outreach. But Naturally, they have limited resources to do so. It's a church like ours that occasionally receives an email or a letter from someone just like this author saying, please support me in my missions work. I need to be supported in my missions work. I'm willing to leave. I'm willing to go to the mission field. All I need is financial support. How should the church go about deciding who they're going to support? How should they choose which missionaries to take on? Is the proper response just one of compassion? Should we operate on a first-come, first-served basis? Or should they consider other factors as they decide who it is that they as a church are going to support? And if other factors should be considered, then what are they? On what basis should churches choose to support one missionary over another? And how are they to decide which missionary is more worthy of their body's investment than another? Well, obviously, these are difficult questions. And there's many factors 
that we would have to take into account as we made those decisions. But at the center of a church's consideration ought to be this question. What does the Bible teach is the goal of missions? Or another way we could ask it is, what is the church called to do and how should it go about doing it, both here and in lands where the church is weak or non-existent? A biblical answer to that question helps us to determine who it is that we as a local church should support. It helps us to answer that question. And the text that we're going to be looking at to answer that question is Matthew 28, what we've already read, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Um, This is the final commissioning that we're going to be studying in our series. And as we've already read it, we won't read it again. But you can see as you look at it, if your text is open, that our commission is made up of three parts. It starts with a truth or a promise that Jesus gives us. It moves from that truth or promise to a commission or a command that Jesus gives to his disciples. And then it is followed up by yet a third uh, element, a second truth or promise. And if you're looking at your bulletin, you have the three parts of the sermon there in your bulletin, beginning with the king's authority. So let's begin with that first statement that Jesus makes when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now any fourth grader can tell you when another student shows up on the playground or the baseball diamond and starts giving orders and bossing people around and claiming to be in charge, there's only one proper response to give. And it's a response that comes in two words that you slur together to make one word, and that is, says who? You all have to pick up what you're doing and come inside. Oh, yeah? Says who? I get to pick who plays on which team. Really? Says who? And the answer that Miss Bossy Pants gives to that question is very important, isn't it? In fact, it's the determining factor in what happens next. And as we hear Jesus making the lofty claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, we might be wondering that same thing. Says who? And if we search the scriptures, we find that the answer is quite clear. This authority has come from the top. If we go back to Daniel, we see a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I'll read for you. And the prophecy says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now you have to keep in mind that son of man is the term that Jesus used most often to refer to himself. It's a weird way to talk about yourself unless you have something in mind. And he does. He has this passage in mind. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which is God in this passage, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be Destroyed. So there was a prophecy in the book of Daniel that when this son of man came to earth, God would bestow upon him a kingdom that would rule all kingdoms. That he would give him an authority that's over all authorities. And that is what Jesus is alluding to as he says here that all authority has been given to him. Paul speaks of this authority in multiple letters, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, that God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. 
And he says in Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Scripture is clear that the authority Jesus has comes from God, comes from the top. It's been bestowed upon him by our creator. So assuming you're the fourth grader on the playground, after hearing what scripture says, you turn to your friends and you say, his credentials check out, guys. God sent him. Uh, But you've got another card to play. So you turn back to Mr. High and Mighty and you say, well, what exactly did God say that you're in charge of? To which Jesus would respond, everything. He gave me all authority in heaven and on earth. He's made me the undisputed king of the universe. He's given me authority over Herod and over Caesar and over every other ruler to follow them. And he's even given me authority over you. He's given me authority over the angels, over the demons, and over the very devil himself. There is no authority that rivals Christ's. No powerful, more powerful, more powerful than his. No power more powerful than his. No kingdom that will prevail against his. As Paul writes in Ephesians, he is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I use the fourth grade analogy because we Americans can be a lot like fourth graders and that we don't really like to be told what to do. And we, as a people, can tend to have a healthy amount of contempt for authority, especially when we don't like what they're telling us. But what if we had a leader who was like Jesus? What if we had a leader whose track record was one of perfect righteousness? What if we had a leader who was always just in their dealings with their people? A leader who used his power to serve his people rather than abuse them. A leader who would give his own life to save the lives of his people. A leader who had unrivaled authority with which he could show unrivaled love and mercy and kindness to his people. Well, that'd be really good news, wouldn't it? And what if we had a leader who, when someone was found to be guilty for breaking his laws, he had the authority to forgive their trespasses? What if we had a leader who used his authority to answer our law-breaking with mercy and grace rather than wrath, punishment, and extortion? What if we had a leader who, after forgiving our trespasses, could give us new hearts and a new power with which we could live new lives? What if we had a leader who had the authority not only to provide us with a better life now, but who even had the authority to grant us eternal life after we died? Well, that would be more than good news. That would be news so good, it'd be worth sharing, isn't it? And that's what we find here at the beginning of our passage. The news that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, is wonderful news, so wonderful that it's worth sharing. And so that is why the commission that Jesus gives next contains the word, therefore. Go, therefore, Jesus says, 
and make disciples. That someone like Jesus reigns and rules the universe is news that can't be kept quiet. That Jesus has authority over every ruler, whether wicked or benevolent. He has authority over every spiritual being, whether angelic or demonic. And that he has authority over the eternal destiny of every soul with the authority to take those souls that are eternally damned and destine them to eternal life is news that you can't keep to yourself. And so in keeping with the nature of the news, Jesus commissions his disciples saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Moving on to our second point, the king's work is the work we are aiming to define this morning as we ask the question, what is the goal of missions? And as we see in the word, therefore, the king's work is in light of and flows out of the king's authority. And what we see here is that the king's work is the work of bringing the nations into his kingdom and under his reign, under his reign. That is not to say that the king's work, that the work of Jesus' disciples is to establish his kingdom. As if Christians are being sent out to take land that doesn't belong to them. It's not to say that our mission is to win more authority for our king, as if he sent us to bring people not belonging to him and make them submit to his rule. Rather, our work is the work of helping people to realize Jesus' reign. It is the work of communicating the world as it actually is. Jesus does reign, and his reign is over all, Not everyone has received his authority in their lives, and it is the work of the disciples to bring that news and teach those people that they can come and bow their knee to the one who truly reigns, Jesus. So as we answer that question, what is the goal of missions, we might start by saying the goal of missions is to help people from every tribe and nation to realize Jesus' reign and to submit to him, to realize his reign and to submit to him. But we would need to follow that up by asking, well, how do we do that? How do we help people to realize that Jesus reigns and get them to submit to him? And the way Jesus tells us to do that is through the work of making disciples. So what does it mean to make disciples? Well, disciple-making is the work of self-reproduction. Notice that the people Jesus told to make disciples were described just a few verses earlier as disciples. It is the disciples themselves that have been given the command to make disciples. And they would have understood Jesus' command as a command to take their experience of sitting at Jesus' feet and following Jesus along the way and learning from Jesus' teaching and loving, coming to love who Jesus was, not to mention their experience of running and hiding when Jesus was arrested only to be received back by Jesus in forgiveness and grace and acceptance. They would take all of that experience and understand that that is what they were to pass along to others. Now, one observation we might make at this point is that when it comes to making disciples, being comes before doing. Being comes before doing. We need to be disciples before we make disciples. And Jesus taught that to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
To be a disciple of Jesus is to give up our plans. It's to give up our ambitions, our hopes, our desires, and instead to learn to follow Jesus in what his plans are and his desires are and his ambitions are for us and for the whole world around us. To be a disciple is to surrender everything to follow Christ. To be a disciple is to know that following Jesus comes also at a cost. It comes at a cost. It's described as taking up your cross, which was an ancient form of torture and death, because it is a way that involves suffering. And it involves suffering because it is the way of following Jesus. And Jesus' way was a way that led him to the cross in sacrificial love for others. So also as we walk the way of Jesus in sacrificial love for others, we will encounter suffering and we may very well end our lives upon our own crosses. But we'd be mistaken if we understood Jesus' call to discipleship to be nothing but doom and gloom. For Jesus promises his disciples in the very next sentence that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that is to say what Jesus gives to his disciples is far better than what they stand to lose for being his disciples. Jesus promises in return for their giving up of their lives, life eternal, true life, as he says in the Gospel of John. Well, if we are to pass on that life of discipleship, then we will have to have lived that life of discipleship. If we're to make followers and learners of Jesus, then we need to have truly given ourselves to a life of following and learning from Jesus. So the second point we have to make about disciple-making is that it begins with evangelism. Disciple-making begins with evangelism. Now, this doesn't necessarily come out of the text anywhere, but I think it's an important, for us to, uh, important for us to make that point. Because we tend to talk about discipleship in the church today as if it's something we do only after someone has come to Christ. We talk about discipleship as being this thing that we do when someone who is already a follower of Christ kind of comes to a point in their life where they, they, they actually want to go deeper with Christ, and so they want someone to disciple them. But we have to understand that for these disciples that Jesus is talking to here in the early church to follow them, discipleship began with evangelism. You could even make the argument that it began before evangelism. Discipleship began with them going out to the nations who had no clue who Jesus was and loving them and being Christ to them and earning their trust and getting to a point where they could open the door and see an open door for the gospel in which they would evangelize and share the gospel. And then if they receive the gospel, help them to walk through the implications of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So discipleship, begins with being, and discipleship begins long before someone is already a Christian. It begins with evangelism and even before evangelism. So at this point, we could say that the goal of missions, as we continue to answer our question, the goal of missions is to help people realize Jesus' reign and submit to him by becoming disciples. But once again, we can't stop there. We need to ask, well, how are we supposed to go about making disciples? What does Jesus tell us about how we make disciples? And Jesus gives us three ways in our passage that we're to go about making disciples. We're to make disciples as we go, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. So obeying Jesus' command to make disciples begins 
with the going, with the going. That is to say that disciple-making is meant to be carried out by people who go. It's not a ministry that is to be accomplished only by sending letters or mailing pamphlets. I received over the last couple of weeks two letters and two pamphlets from one of our neighbors in Naperville who's a uh, Jehovah's Witness. Right? So there's, there's some evangelizing going on in our neighborhoods. Are we rivaling it? Are we doing it as well? I also saw uh, on the news as Ukrainians poured across the border JW.org posters waiting for them as they walked across the border. None of this is in my notes, but it's something to be aware of. Are we as evangelistic as they are? So obeying begins with doing and, uh, or going, sorry, obeying begins with going. It's not a ministry that is to be accomplished only by sending letters or mailing pamphlets. It's to be accomplished by real, in the flesh, followers of Jesus who are willing to go to those they aim to make disciples of. Now, why might that be important? Why might it be important to stress the going element of making disciples? Well, I believe it's because that's how Jesus made his disciples. The people of Israel, as we know from reading the Old Testament prophecies and the scriptures, the people of Israel had already been sent plenty of letters through the prophets, telling them of God's ways and God's rules and God's heart. The people of Israel could have gone to the synagogue and asked to read the scroll of Isaiah or the scroll of Hosea and and heard God's call for them to repent and to return to him. But when the time came for God to bring about his kingdom, he didn't send them another letter. He sent them his son. He sent them a letter in human form. The word became flesh. And he did it this way so that he might not only tell them, but also show them. Show them the power of his kingdom come on earth and invite them to join it. And as the Father has sent the Son, so Jesus is sending us. Jesus tells us to go so that we too can show God's kingdom has come in power. And that kingdom power is to be seen in the testimony of our transformed lives. The call to go is the call to take the testimony that God can transform lives and to show through our own lives that he actually does. And we're to do this by being Christ to other people, what some refer to as incarnational ministry. We're to be Christ to other people. Where words fail, our actions fill the gap. So we go to the nations, we go across the street, we go to our neighbors and our friends, and we seek to be Christ to them by caring for the poor, by serving the forgotten, by loving our enemies, by forgiving those who have wronged us, by looking for opportunities to show grace where grace is undeserved even by giving our own lives for the sake of those we aim to make disciples. Our aim in going is not just to tell about our transformed lives, but to live it, to put the gospel on display through it, such that others might see and know and desire to follow Jesus too. We cannot do these things unless we go, whether it's across the street or to another table in the cafeteria, if you're in middle school or high school, or to Papua New Guinea or Ecuador. We must go if we're to make disciples. 
Second, we are to make disciples by baptizing. Though the process of making disciples begins prior to someone becoming a disciple, one obvious goal of disciple making is that at some point, someone actually transitions from being outside the group of Jesus' disciples to being inside it. And the distinguishing mark Jesus gives for the person who has become his disciple is the mark of baptism. It is a mark that symbolizes what God in Christ has done for the new disciple. A physical testimony to the fact that through the believer's faith in Jesus, they've been united to Christ in his death to sin and then raised with Christ to new life. And the fact that Jesus tells us to baptize as we make disciples tells us that disciple-making at some point demands a decision. It demands a decision. Disciple-making is not meant to be a venture in always learning about something but never arriving at it. We need to keep that in mind as we aim to obey Jesus' commission. While there is much to be said for gaining trust and playing the long game with those we hope to reach, there is also a day when we must ask those we are discipling, are you in or are you out? And if they're in, we baptize them and say welcome to the family. But if they're out, then we need to be careful not to give them false assurance that just because they meet with a disciple of Jesus Christ and talk about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that that makes them a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who's decided to follow Jesus, who's taken up their cross, who through repentance and faith follows Jesus and submits to him as their king. There's a lot you could say about baptism here, but I will stop there or Kip Sonsek may come and tackle me because he is preaching on baptism next week and I want to save the good stuff for you, Kip, all right? So just so you know, I was thinking about you. You're welcome. You're welcome. The third disciple way we make disciples is by teaching new disciples to observe that all that Jesus commanded. That's what he says here in uh, the Great Commission. Teach them all that I have commanded, to observe all that I have commanded. When Jesus is commanding his disciples here, it is more than writing a good curriculum. It's not saying go and write a really, really good curriculum. It's more than making a bunch of powerful object lessons to get the point across. This is instruction that has as its goal not just learning but doing. That's why it says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. To be a disciple of Jesus is not achieved by becoming an expert exegete. It's not achieved by becoming a scholar on the New Testament. We have plenty of those in the academic world who don't qualify as Jesus' disciples. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be someone who knows what Jesus says and obeys it. Not perfectly, of course, but in a way that shows steady spiritual growth and transformation as they follow Jesus with the help of his Holy Spirit. And anyone who has aimed to teach people to obey knows that this is not an easy task, is it? It's one thing to get information across. It's another thing to see that information applied digested, and lived by. It's not an easy task. It's not a quick task. It's a task that takes time and patience and prayer and wisdom on the part of the discipler, and it's a task that takes time and patience and prayer and wisdom on the part of the disciplee. But it is something that is evident 
and measurable and filled with grace and joy along the way. So at this point, we have come to the conclusion that the goal of missions is to help people realize Jesus' reign and become his disciples by going to them as Christ's ambassadors, baptizing them into Christ's family, and teaching them to obey all that Christ teaches. And by God's design, this is not a work that we are called to carry out on our own. For Jesus finishes his great commission with a sweet affirmation, Behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Interestingly enough, as we hit our last point for today, Matthew's gospel ends with this final statement. There is no record in Matthew of Jesus' ascension. He doesn't trouble himself to point out that the way Jesus will be with us is through his Holy Spirit. He simply ends his gospel with Jesus' affirmation that we need not consider this commission one to be filled on our own. He will be with us to accomplish the very thing he asks of us. What a gracious reminder that is and one that we need to hear today and every day. Jesus goes with his disciples in the work of disciple making. As we conclude today, I'd like to ponder three questions with you. And these questions, uh, these are the three questions. What is the goal of missions? The topic for our sermon today. How do we aim to accomplish it both globally and locally? And is my life my best answer to the Great Commission? Well, what is the goal of missions? Where have we arrived? Well, if you recall how we began this morning, there was an article I mentioned at the beginning of this message, an article that raised the question of whether the church ought to prioritize supporting one type of missions work over another. Specifically, should the church prioritize church planting and strengthening missions? And we've made significant headway in answering that question by concluding that the goal of missions is to help people realize Jesus' reign and become his disciples by going to them, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. You'll notice that nowhere in that statement do we use the word church, or do we talk about church planning. But at the same time, you'll notice that the necessity of the local church to accomplish that mission is all over the place. For if the work of missions is to make disciples, and disciple-making requires baptism and spiritual instruction, then what exactly are new disciples being baptized into? And where does Scripture teach that they should be instructed? And the answer that we find throughout the Scriptures, both in the book of Acts and in the letters that follow it, is a constant testimony that baptism and spiritual instruction are to find their home In the local church. We see this in Romans 6, where Paul, in speaking to the Romans about baptism, he doesn't tell them to get baptized, but rather assumes they already are, as that is the mark of the disciples who are in the church. We see it in the fact that the apostles' letters that offer so much spiritual instruction and how to obey the commands of Jesus are written to churches. And to pastors of those churches. We see it in Hebrews 10.25 where disciples are told to not neglect meeting together, but to regularly gather for the encouragement of one another. We see it in the early testimony of Paul and Barnabas, who on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14 went to Derby. And while they were there, we learned that 
when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we see on the first missionary journey that the work of missions was the work of making disciples that was immediately followed by strengthening the souls of the disciples and planting churches. And not just churches in the sense of people who got together and talked about Jesus, but churches in the sense that elders were appointed for the care of the souls who are the, of those who are in the recognized body of the church. So yes, the goal of missions is to make disciples, but disciple-making, especially understood as including baptism and spiritual instruction, is the work of local church planting. It is the work of the local church. So we can't say that the goal of missions is to just make disciples, as if church planting can come later. The work of missions is to make disciples through the instrument of the local church, through the instrument of the local church. So what does this mean for us as we seek to apply it both locally and globally? Well, it means that if we're to be faithful to fulfill the Great Commission, then we need to be faithful to the work of planting and strengthening the local church. If we're to be faithful to the calling to make disciples, then we need to be faithful to the calling to strengthen and plant local churches. How does that play out here where we already have a church? So on the local aspect, how does that play out here as opposed to the global aspect when we send people to regions where there is no church or where the church is underdeveloped and weak? To answer this question, I have been helped along by um, Leslie Newbigin, who uh, when he talks about this, he distinguishes between what he calls the mission and missions. The mission and missions. Newbegin argues that the mission is the work of the local church to make disciples. The mission is the work of the local church to make disciples. Missions exist where the church doesn't. So the work of missions must begin with the work of church planting and church strengthening. If we're going to send people out in missions, the goal is to establish a church. And then from that church, disciples are made and sent out. Now, obviously, there's a cart and a horse thing here, and you're going to need a few disciples to make a church, right? So it's not quite as like, this is the church now, we have a building. It's, not, it's a little more organic than that. Right? But do you get the point? Missions is about establishing the church so that then disciples can be made from that church. Or the way Newbegin says it, when a witnessing community or church has been established, missions is finished and the mission begins. Missions is finished, the mission begins. Now, don't take that all the way to its extremes. Mission is not finished because then you need to send out more missionaries to more unreached places. But it helps us to understand the difference between the local and the global element. So what this all boils down to for our purposes is to say that when we engage in mission, our goal must include as a top priority the establishment and strengthening of local churches. That isn't to say that sports ministry or medical missions or community development are important or valid ministries. And I know this is a sensitive topic because, like, our friends serve in these ways, don't they? 
our nephew is overseas doing sports camps, you know, or whatever it might be. But if we're to be a responsible church when it comes to how we do missions, I think the way we are responsible is we understand that those types of ministries are ministries that come out of the church. They don't plant the church. And so when we find ourselves sending missionaries to places where there is no church, where the church is weak and unestablished, the work must be laser-focused on planting local churches. And from there, missions can go out. Our final question today is, is my life my best answer to the Great Commission? And even as I read that, I I want to know, uh, you to know, that my goal in this whole sermon series, and, and whenever we talk about missions, is never to make you feel bad about yourself. Like, man, I really, like, I hate these weeks because I stink at this, and I don't really want to be here this week. It's never my goal, and I know that this question might have a little bit of that flavor to it. So let me, let me flesh it out a little bit. Two questions that might come from it. How are you doing at being a disciple, and how are you doing at making disciples? So as we've talked about, disciple-making, the doing of it, begins with being a disciple, So that's where we start. We start by asking ourselves, how am I doing it following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Do I know what he teaches? Do I have anyone in my life who's helping me to follow Jesus? Have I come to a point where I've actually made a decision to follow Jesus? This would be a good question for those who are younger among us, who have grown up in our church and they could you know, give us a wanna verses all day long, put, put Pastor Nick to shame in memorizing scripture, but have you made a decision to follow Jesus? And if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, have you been baptized? Have you chosen to identify yourself with the visible body of Christ here at Grace Church of DuPage? And if you've been baptized, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, the question would be, are you part of a local church? Are you part of a local church? Are you attending a local church? If you went to the church that you say you're attending, Would the people there be able to confirm that you're attending that local church? That's one of the questions I ask people when I'm out and about. Like, oh, you sound like you go to a church. You'll go to a church somewhere. And I think about it for a little bit. And they come up with the name of a church. And you're like, I'm not sure if you went there. Those people would know that you went to that church. So you can say you go to a church. But do the people know that you go to that church? Not only do you attend that church, have you submitted yourself to the authority that God has placed in that church? To be a disciple of Christ is to submit to God-given authority. And are you someone who's teachable? As you read your word, as you hear what God commands of you through Jesus Christ, as you hear all the commands of Jesus Christ, are you seeking to observe them and obey them? Are you being a disciple? From there we ask, how are you doing it? Making disciples and I want to encourage you to know that one of the best ways you can make disciples is by being a disciple. Being a disciple, I would say, is half the battle in making disciples. Because most people learn first by watching. They learn by observing. They want to see if this thing is real that you're talking about. They want to see if what you, you told them about over the lunch is something you actually believe, you actually follow, you actually ascribe to in your daily life. So being a disciple is half the battle. So you might ask yourself, who's watching me? Who's observing me? My home, at work, the gym, 
a sports court? Who's observing me, and am I making disciples by being a disciple? And maybe you've gone so far as to actually start discipling someone, that you've taken it upon yourself to pursue whether there's someone who doesn't know Christ or someone who already does know Christ, and you've wanted to introduce them to Jesus, and you're taking time out of your day and out of your schedule to sit down and read scriptures with someone and walk them in their learning and following Jesus. That's awesome if you are. We need that. We need that in this church. Every single person in this church needs that. They need someone doing that with them whether it's in the women's ministry or the youth ministry or kids' ministry or the men's ministry, the trailblazers' ministry, we need people who are discipling us. Well, as you consider who you're discipling, you might want to ask, am I pointing this person towards making a decision for Jesus? Is that one of my discipling tools? Am I sitting with them saying, hey, this is all great. We're studying word. We love the word of God. But have you, when are you going to decide to follow Jesus? Let's make that decision. And if they've made that decision, are you asking them, hey, you say that you're a follower of Christ, but have you been baptized? Jesus says, repent and be baptized. It's one of his commands. What's keeping you from identifying publicly with the church of Christ? And let's talk about that. Or have you joined a local church or are you submitting to your elders? One question you might ask yourself in your discipling is, do you speak well of the local church with those that you are discipling? Do you you talk about the bride of Christ in a way that communicates your love for that bride and your desire for them to be a part of it? Or are you trying to replace the bride of Christ and what you're doing in meeting with that person? Perhaps you have a real gift for disciple-making And I would ask you, have you considered using that gift to plant churches where there is no church? Have you considered the fact that we need people to go, not just across the street, but across the world? We need people to go, and we would love to be the church that sends you to plant churches and strengthen churches as God commands us to. Well, Jesus has called us to be a disciple-making church, and my hope is that over these three weeks that we've caught a little bit of the vision for that. I hope that outreach has become a, a bigger category in our minds as we've studied this topic these last three weeks. I hope that it begins its application in us simply by prayer. Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to apply these messages? Know that there are no plans to make, to like change this place, to make some drastic changes so that we are a more outreach sensitive church, though that wouldn't be bad necessarily. We just want you to start thinking, God, what are you doing in my heart so that I can be on mission with you, so that I can answer the call to missions? And let's pray that he would do that. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that, that you would move in our hearts, showing each and every one of us with the various giftings and dispositions that you have given us, where it is that you are calling us to be a disciple who makes disciples. Lord, your spirit goes with us in this, and we are so grateful for that. So we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you, the one who asks this of us, is also the one who gives us the strength to accomplish it. So accomplish this in us and through Grace Church. In Jesus' name, amen.